Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, the first 11 verses. please as I read these 11 verses regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of God's people. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus made me free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. That the ordinance of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind of the flesh is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. And they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. But if any man has not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ Jesus from the dead shall give life also to your mortal bodies through his Spirit that is dwelling in you. Please again bow with me as we seek the Lord's help in our prayer. <clears throat> our Father... You have loved us from eternity. And the love wherewith you have loved us is an exceeding great love. You have demonstrated that love toward us in that while we were 
enemies of you while we were without strength while we were yet sinners by practice by choice by habit by delight your son was sent by you from heaven to die for us O Lord you who spared not your own son but delivered him up for us how shall you not also with him freely give us all things and we believe that one of these things which is ours because of him is the presence and the ministry of your Holy Spirit for all the contingencies of our lives in this world Lord how desperately this church this morning needs your spirit how vulnerable we are to our own remaining and to the devil and his wiles. How close some of us are to losing our step and falling and plunging to our destruction. How negligent some are to the hour of worship. How poorly prepared many are. How thoughtless we've been. How prayerless. How little has your word been allowed to burn within these hearts of self-centered vain pride. O oh God, we have sung hymns and read passages from your word and we have entered into an hour of solemn worship of the God of heaven, our hope for eternity. And some of us are acting as though this is no big deal. We see demonstrated before our own eyes our own cold heart. And we bow now in your presence and ask that in the preaching of your word these cold hearts of stone may beat by the heat of your spirit as flesh. And we pray that you would give boldness to this preacher, that you would make his speech clear, that you would direct it to be, to be conformed to your word, and that you would give to the audience hearts of receptive, humble teachability like the Bereans of old who are ready with all readiness to receive the things preached willing to search the scriptures to confirm them O oh Lord by your spirit come now rest away from us the trinkets of our affections that have drawn us from you search our hearts and sensitize us to our own sins and raise us up, O oh Lord, to give praise and worship to you as you deserve. We pray for those in our midst who are strangers to Christ and grace, that you would make him precious to their hearts, make them to see their sin and their state before you, under your wrath, and we ask you to deliver them for Jesus' sake. Now, Lord, come by your Spirit. O oh Lord, do what we can't do. You know our need, you see it. And you are our God who provides all I need in Christ. Do now display your grace here. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Amen. We have been studying for you who are our visitors the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. That study is an extended part of our long-range study of the Gospel of John. And as we came to John chapters 14, 15, and 16, 
which focuses upon our Lord's provision for his followers after his departure and therefore focuses upon the sending of his spirit to the world when he ascended and went to the, sit at the right hand of God on high, we decided to spend that our time for however long it took in studying and contemplating this wonderful, this awesome, this holy subject of the third person of God the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And we have surveyed the witness of the Bible regarding the Holy Spirit. We have sought to understand from Scripture the biblical idea of the indwelling and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we've just concluded a series of messages on the benefits to the saints of the indwelling of God's Spirit among them. We've, we've studied his person. We've studied an overview of his work. And as a part of the study of his work, we are now unfolding his gift or the giving of him to all those who believe in Jesus. Looking, having looked at the biblical witness, the biblical idea, and the blessed benefits of our Lord the Spirit living among us and in us, this morning I want us to direct our attention to the subject, the characteristics of the Spirit's indwelling. The characteristics of the Spirit's indwelling. We might say, among those characteristics, we might focus upon the evidence of the Spirit and then the ways of the Spirit in his work with his people. In this section of our study, the characteristics of the Spirit's indwelling, we'll seek today to examine the evidence of his indwelling. How does one know that the Spirit of Christ lives within him? We've read in Romans chapter 8 that if the Spirit of God lives in you, then you are alive. If he does not live in you, you are dead. If you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you by the Spirit mortify the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. He's not a Christian. He's under the wrath of God. But if the Spirit of Christ does live in you, he shall raise up even your mortal bodies at the last day in glory. However... We ask the question, how does one know that he is in the Spirit and not in the flesh? Is there biblical evidence? Are there tokens by which a person may have confidence that the Spirit of God lives within him? And this morning, as one aspect of our study of the characteristics of the Holy Spirit's indwelling his people, we'll seek to examine the evidence of this indwelling. Now, here's how I'm doing it. I'm dividing it up into two sections. Roman numeral one is this. It's a statement. A statement that has a main clause or an independent clause and two dependent clauses. The main clause is this. There is abiding evidence in every true believer in Jesus that the Holy Spirit lives in him. There is abiding evidence in every true believer in Jesus that the Holy Spirit lives in him. The two subordinate clauses, capital letter A, capital letter B in my outline, though this evidence varies 
in degrees and strength and discernibility. That's the first subordinate clause. There is abiding evidence in every true believer in Jesus that the Holy Spirit lives in him, though this evidence varies in degrees and strength and discernibility. Chapter letter B, the second subordinate clause, and though there is much false teaching and fuzzy thinking regarding the evidence. And though there is much false teaching and fuzzy thinking regarding this evidence. Now that's Roman numeral one broken down into its two subordinate parts. There is abiding evidence in every true believer in Jesus that the Holy Spirit lives in him. Though this evidence varies in degrees and strength and discernibility, and though there is much false teaching and fuzzy thinking regarding this evidence. Let us take up the first subordinate clause first, then the second, and then Roman numeral two will be the question, what then is this permanent evidence of the Spirit indwelling every true believer? The first is the statement that there is evidence. There is abiding, permanent evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But two qualifying helps or qualifying clauses put some difficulty in this evidence. The first is that this evidence, though it is there and though it is abiding in every true believer, varies in its degrees, in its strength, and in its ability to be discerned, its discernibility. And there are some reasons for this. In the first place, at times, saints may act contrary to the expected evidence of the Holy Spirit's influence. Is that not true? As a saint of God, are you not sometimes guilty of acting in a way that does not look like the Spirit of God is having any influence over you at all. Saints are capable of wretched sin. <coughs> Saints are capable of foolishness, of error. Saints may act in various ways contrary to the expected evidence of the Holy Spirit's influence. Now, because that's true, sometimes this abiding evidence is diminished. When we say it varies in degrees, in strength, in discernibility, we are not saying that that means that the Spirit's indwelling varies. That's a permanent reality as we've already established. We're saying that the evidence, the discernibility of that present Holy Spirit varies. One, because saints are capable and often do act in a way that is contrary to the influence of the Holy Spirit. You could never blame the Spirit for saints being angry with each other. You can never blame God for saints getting upset and mouthing off and not confessing that sin and humbling themselves one to another. 
You can never say it's a mark of the indwelling spirit that a church would be divided or that people would not be recipients gladly of the word of truth as we heard er earlier today. You would never blame the Holy Spirit on gross immorality in a saint. If a saint acts in a way that is vile, that is stupid, that is rebellious, you could not from that have evidence that the Holy Spirit lives in it. And so saints who are capable of such behavior draw the thing to a question and make themselves and others wonder if indeed they do have this spirit. Many saints themselves struggle with assurance because of remaining unmortified sinful habits. They continue to commit the sins that makes them wonder if God dwells in them because how could God have this kind of influence? If I'm possessed by the Holy Spirit and possess Him, how could I act in such a way? Sometimes long periods of sin help people to doubt their salvation and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I would submit to you that this is one of the reasons that later we have to talk about fuzzy thinking on the issue. Many saints, or people who think themselves to be saints, look at themselves and their behavior and because that behavior contradicts their testimony of the evidence of the indwelling of the Spirit, they doubt then they have the Spirit. Nevertheless, they believe they're saints, so they come up with new doctrines to try to satisfy that need for the Spirit. They see saints acting carnally as a way of life, and so they say, well, we know they're Christians because they've made their decision to accept Jesus. But it's obvious that the Holy Spirit is not influencing their life. So there must be something to the truth that you can be saved without having the Spirit. So we need to find what the Bible might say to help us get the Spirit in addition to being saved. That's the root of much of that false theology and fuzzy thinking. They want to satisfy this frustration with churches filled with Christians who show no evidence that the Spirit of God dwells in them. Now, there's one of two problems. Either the churches are not filled with Christians, which is true, I believe, in many cases, where people think they're Christians and they're not, or these Christians are acting in ways like the Corinthians that could be called carnal. Are ye not yet carnal, the apostle asked. Well, some have decided to make that doctrine of carnal Christianity into a firm, established piece of evidence that there's such a thing as being a Christian but living in the flesh. The scriptures have just told us you do not live in the flesh if you're a Christian. You cannot, by constitution, by pattern of life, be carnal. You can act carnally in various ways, in various times, but if you're truly Christ, that'll not have dominion in your life. But it's because saints do act carnally and sometimes frequently carnally and sometimes whole segments of churches live worldly that men have questions about the evidence of the Spirit. So the evidence varies in degrees and strength and discernibility. Not only though, because saints may act contrary to the expected evidence of the Spirit's influence, but also because of the nature of sanctification. The reason that saints are able to act in ways that are contrary to the Spirit's influence or contrary to what we might expect from one filled with the Spirit or one, let's 
be more precise, who is indwelt by the Spirit, is because of the nature of sanctification. Sanctification is threefold. There are three aspects to God's work of sanctifying or making his people holy. You've heard them before. Some of you have just heard, I think, a series of messages in Tennessee regarding this subject. It's a simple breakdown of the threefold aspect of sanctification. In the first place, sanctification is the radical delineation of the believer from sin. It's the work of God by which a sinner is separated from, his, from the power of his sins and a major and radical and clear-cut transformation takes place. Radical delineation from sin. And I chose the word delineation because there's a line drawn. There's a break made. There's such a break made that this break can never be undone or lost. When the Spirit comes in regenerating grace and a person is born again of the Spirit of God, such a change takes place in his heart, in the true man, that he will never again be able to be what he was before. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away, behold. All things are become new. That's the biblical description of a new thing that can never be undone. The words birth, the words creation, even the word resurrection is used to describe this work of Christ coming into the heart of a sinner and making him alive and breaking the power of sin. There is this radical delineation from sin which is the experience and portion of everyone that comes to Christ in faith. However, there's a second aspect of sanctification, and this is where a lot of people get into trouble. Not only is there this radical delineation from sin, and in fact the great confessions, many of them do not emphasize the first phase, the first aspect. They emphasize the second, but not the first. And as a result, there's this uh, lack of clarity among many of the necessity for this radical transformation. There's, there are many who sort of see Christianity as something into, into which you may osmose, as one substance sort of seeps through the, the uh, cell wall into another uh, melding of another substance and just gradually makes its way through without any actual effort or work from outside itself. And so they don't look for evidence of repentance and real faith and change of character. But there is a second aspect of sanctification, one that is emphasized in the Great Confessions, and we're calling it the gradual transformation from the old man. Having experienced the radical delineation from sin, the believer experiences the gradual transformation from the old man, and the key word here is gradual. There's the once-for-all radical break with sin that takes place in conversion. But there is also this gradual sanctifying work. Now, in the radical break with sin, the sinner is passive. The Holy Spirit does the work sovereignly upon him and breaks the power of sin, puts within him a principle of life, and flowing from that work of God, we see the graces of faith, repentance, and the pursuit of holiness. 
But in this gradual work of sanctification, the sinner who is now a saint is acting with the Spirit of God. There's a coordination of work. God is at work. The saint is at work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God that is at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your minds, etc. The, the directives of Scripture to a sinner who is saved to work diligently, to war, to labor, to mortify sin, and to cultivate the virtues of Christ in his life. So it's not, it's not any longer, uh, as they say, a monergistic work in which only one is working, God, so that the saint waits and says, whenever God does his thing, then I'll see progress. In the development and gradual sanctification of the saint, the saint is at work vigorously as a co-laborer with God against God's enemy. This gradual transformation is throughout the New Testament seen and expounded. And it's this doctrine that's so often missed by many in the church who don't want the frustration of this patience and steadfastness and perseverance that's required. And throughout the New Testament you see reference to this patience of the saints, the steadfastness of the saints, the faithfulness. He that endures to the end will be saved. He that is faithful and perseveres to the end. He that overcomes, etc., etc. That's the biblical doctrine of the necessity for the saints to vigorously labor against remaining sin. But the third aspect of sanctification is seen in the final conformation to Christ. Begin in the radical delineation from sin. Continue in this gradual and mostly often painfully gradual transformation from the old man. And then finally, consummation in confirmation to Christ. Whenever Jesus comes a second time without sin unto salvation, those who are his will be finally, perfectly, ultimately conformed to his image we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And we will enter his glory and share it with him. God, what we're saying is this, that God has been pleased in converting us to Christ, not to remove our sins totally, nor to eradicate from us their tendencies and their nature. Sin still lives in the believer. And the believer still sins. He is capable of great failures. Even moral lapses. David, a man after God's own heart, is capable on the first hand of being lazy, undisciplined, and irresponsible. And when men ought to be out in war, and when kings should be out in war, stay at home and goes out wasting his time in a leisure hour and looks out across the balcony into the backyard or into the courtyard of a neighbor and sees the neighbor's wife bathing and instead of disciplining his eyes and turning away, gazes upon her and desires her and lets the flames of lust begin to lick at his heart. And then, if that weren't enough, he gives in to that and uses his power as the king which God has given him 
to go have the woman brought to him into his chamber. He has servants in the palace, maidens and manservants, knowing what he's doing. He sends them to fetch her. And all within the castle know what King David is doing. The word, no doubt, is beginning to spread to their families. Jerusalem is beginning to hear through the rumor mill what King David has done. And he brings Bathsheba into his bedchamber and lies with her. And she conceives his child. Now, in order to cover his sin, when it becomes known to him that there's, there's, he's going to get caught, he fetches Uriah, again using his kingly power, from the battle to bring him home so he can get him to spend the night with his wife so Uriah, when the baby's born, will have no thought that it belongs to somebody other than Uriah. Now he's lying and he's deceiving. He's already stolen a man's wife. He's already committed adultery. He's already turned his heart away from God. He's already misused his authority as king, and now he's a liar. He's David, a man after God's own heart. And then, because Uriah is nobler than his king and will not go in and sleep with his wife while others are out to battle, but stays out on the porch, David, that didn't work, so he goes to a further length and sends him to the battle, arranges through his the head of his army to see to it that whenever the heat of the battle's up, everybody else back off and allow Uriah to get killed. Now, David, you see the shrewdness, he didn't kill him. Nobody killed him, and he didn't command somebody to stab him. He just said, back off and let the enemies do it. Brilliant. Not in God's eyes, because the condemnation upon him was the shedding of innocent blood. He's judged as a murderer. He killed Uriah as much as if he'd thrust a sword into his heart and watched the blood come gushing out himself. He was a man of God. I believe he was a saved man. I don't believe you can explain David's experience by saying, well, he wasn't saved yet. But you have to explain David's experience any more than you could say the reason he was able to slay the giant was because he was saved. Those are not evidences. God's people are capable of the vilest kind and the worst kind of sin. And you do see the difference later in the way David responded to that sin and when God dealt with him. And you can also see the difference in the fact that God dealt with him. Other kinds of adulterers, liars, thieves, and murderers, God doesn't, use, doesn't bother with many of them. He just leaves them that way. They're happy doing what they're doing. God never bugs them. But God's people can't sin like that and get by with it. David couldn't. Did you see what's happened? God has in his pleasure allowed the saint still to be capable of this kind of drastic sin. One of the reasons we continue to pound away in this place at your sin and try to apply sermons to your conscience not because we don't love you, not because we love being negative, but because we know what state you're in. We know what you're capable of, what we're capable of. We must never push away this continued onslaught and attack against our sins. If we don't, if we stop doing it, there will be many among us who will fall in this battle.
and we'll have to pick up what's left and carry them off the battlefield, grieving and moaning that we didn't help them beforehand. Dear brethren, God has been pleased to allow us to stay with sin in our heart. Don't ask all the reasons why he has. I think I know a couple of the reasons. One may be that some of you would be so proud and so snooty if he didn't leave some of these other things in you that he he couldn't even deal with you. We wouldn't even be able to put up with you around here. Maybe some of us are so vain that if we didn't do anything bad for a while, we might start thinking that our salvation is somehow connected to our goodness. That somehow it was easy for God to save us because we're just naturally righteous. Some of us would... I would dare say all of us would get very puffy very quickly. But God has been pleased, at least for that reason, and maybe for a lot of other reasons, to allow saints in this world still to be capable of sin. And often he allows them to fall into sin. Why would God let David do such a thing? Don't have the time to answer that. Not even sure we have the ability, but God did let him do it. God could have prevented it. You say, well, how do I know God could have prevented it? Because God prevented you. From doing it. Oh, I wouldn't have done that. Yes, you would have if God hadn't prevented you. You're proud if you think you wouldn't have done it. Oh, I wish I'd lived in the time of the apostles, Pastor. I wouldn't have done to Jesus what they did. I wouldn't have fled whenever he was crucified. I'd have stood up. Well, Peter, Simon Peter thought the same thing on the spot. Took a sword and he was going to wipe out Malchus. Missed him, got his ear. Jesus healed it and gets rid of the sword and then Peter's really frustrated but then later on having been willing to get in a sword fight with uh, men who outnumbered him and he only had two or three swords among the apostolic man if I read it right he's going to fight to the death right uh, uh, just a half a day later a little maiden says you know him and he's, he gets mad and denies he knows Jesus he doesn't want this little maiden to get him into trouble don't deceive yourself God has left in your heart the capacity for the vilest and highest kind of sin However, never will a true saint completely lapse into apostasy. One of the differences is that because of that radical thing that happened at the outset of our conversion, we can never stay in our sin and we can never prosper in it. Our confession states it this way, speaking in the, in the chapter on the perseverance of the saints in the third paragraph, Though they may, speaking of the saints, through the temptation of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, and that's the problem of some of you. You're neglecting the means of your preservation and expecting that preservation to take care of itself. So what does God do? He says, you want to neglect the means? I'm going to let you experience the result to a degree of that neglect. And some of you are miserable, unhappy, bitter, angry, proud, frustrated, morally vulnerable. Why? Because various areas of known duty you're neglecting. That's why God's not blessing and prospering your little feeble prayers sometimes. Oh, make me holy. Well, there are ways to become holy. There are commandments to be followed. There are duties to be done. There's energy and vigor to be exhibited and to be displayed and to be exerted and you're not doing it and you're asking God to make you holy while God said things that would make you holy if you'd attend to them and you're not attending to them. It's like saying, feed me. 
while lying in your bed under the sheets, all curled up, with your mouth open. Feed me. Didn't the Bible say, open your mouth wide and I'll feed you, Lord? Some are acting that way in their lives. They're using the scriptures in such a way. They're perverting scripture to their own destruction. I told somebody this week, I have never yet in my life observed an adult bird sitting in a nest with his mouth open saying, the Bible says he feeds the sparrows. And watch the sparrows. Okay. I've never seen that. The robins who get these worms from God. The Bible attributes the glory to God for that worm. God feeds the robin. How does he do it? I tell you, a robin hunts and pecks and stomps and pulls and fights and jerks and does all kinds of things, gets that worm. Now, from one vantage, you may say, where's God and all that? The Bible says he's right there providing it. But I, you, I guarantee you'll never find the robin living very long who stays in his nest, not out there digging, looking, and pulling worms. The same way with you. Make me holy. Then attend the means God has given you to make you holy. And attend them in the way you're required to attend them. You cannot make progress today if you are content to find the most comfortable position in that pew to lay your head over on the ease because you're tired and ask God to keep you from falling off the sleep. The way to do that is straighten your body up Force your muscles out of their comfort. Keep your head upright so it can't fall asleep. And once in a while, take a couple of deep breaths. Pinch yourself. Squirm enough to stay awake. You must do so. You're not going to make progress if you're content to sit there like a lump on a log. That's the doctrine here of remaining sin and the means. So, but, but the statement says, because men neglect the preservation means, they fall into grievous sin for a time continue therein. This doesn't mean just a little flip. Well, Christians are capable of diving into sin and staying there a while. Whereby they incur God's displeasure. I'm glad they put that first. They understood that was the most, that was the most serious problem. And grieve His Holy Spirit. They come to have their graces and comforts impaired. Thank God you're uncomfortable in your neglect of the means of grace. Thank God you can't stimulate the graces that ought to be yours. You can't find any more faith. Pastor, I just can hardly believe the gospel. You know why? You're disobeying implications of the gospel. God's withdrawn. And here you are. Why don't I have faith? Because you, you disobeyed commandments. Clear commandment. You can't continue to expect those graces to prosper unless you're attending the means of grace. Further, they have their hearts hardened. Oh, terrible thing to have a saint of God sitting in a church with a hard heart. And their conscience is wounded. Some of you didn't think that was serious. God thinks it's serious. To have a wounded conscience. A conscience that's not void of offense before God and man. A conscience that has not cleansed itself by confession. It further says Christians are able to hurt and scandalize others. Don't think your sin's keeping the rest of us clean that nobody knows. We're, our reputation is at stake. The church's name is dragged through the mud with you. 
Don't say, no, I'll keep it to myself. Nobody knows what I'm doing. It's obvious what you're doing. God won't allow you to do it in private and not somebody find out. A little bird will hear the matter and carry it. You're going to get caught. And then it says it brings temporal judgment on themselves. Sickliness. Financial setbacks. Household problems. Personal difficulties. Things just don't fall into place for you. Somebody else has a touch of gold and you touch it and it turns to dirt and you don't know why. Temporal judgment. Yet they shall, it says, renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ to the end. You see, that's the statement that separates the saint from the unbeliever. The Christian is capable of such things, and yet if he's a true saint, he shall renew his repentance and will be kept till the end. But it's good to understand that this evidence varies because partly the nature of sanctification has left us capable of all sorts of sins which make the evidences of the Spirit wane. It's good to understand that. You remember the doctrine in Colossians chapter 3. I think it would be good to turn there because this is, a, this is such a vast text. It may be the most thorough statement in the New Testament that summarizes the whole subject in such clear terms. having told us to set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God having promised that we shall be manifested in glory with him in verse 4 we're told in verse 5 of Colossians 3 put to death therefore your members which are upon the earth and he lists them goes through all these things that need to be put to death and the reason is because the wrath of God comes upon the people to do these things And then it says in verse 7, you used to walk in them. You lived in those things. Verse 8, and he says, go ahead and put them away. And he adds some more things to the list. Then in verse 10 he says, no, in verse 9b he says, seeing that you have put off the old man with his doing. There's the statement of radical delineation from sin. You have put off the old man. There's an aorist sense, a punctiliar act that's been done. It's an act of finished act, a simple, straight-out act, and it's done. You have put off the old man. However, you must continue to put off and put to death the remnants of the old man. Since you have put off the old man, there continues to be this gradual putting off of the old man. It's both and. It's not which one, it's both. There's been a radical delineation from sin. There is an ongoing, gradual fight against sin. And then ultimately, verse 4, ultimately you'll be manifested with Christ in glory. There are those three aspects of sanctification right there. And it's interesting, they're in reverse order. We start with glory, come back to the gradual mortification of sin and the, con- and the contrasting virtues, and then finally, because you have put off the old man. But the order of experience is just in reverse of that. And have put on the new man, verse 10 says that is being renewed. You did something, and something else, because that was done, is continually going on. You did put him off. You did put on the new. 
And that new man is progressively, continuously being renewed unto knowledge after the image of him that created it. We are being made gradually, increasingly, progressively, continuously into the image of Christ. That's what sanctification simply is. And so that section in Colossians sums up this whole picture. We've put off, we have put on, we must continue to put off and put on. And ultimately it'll end up in perfect conformity to Christ. You remember Romans 12, which we quoted. An ongoing, be you transformed. Continue about the practice of being transformed through the ongoing renewing of your mind. That in your practice you may prove what is good and holy. The will of so the scriptures are clear that because of the nature of, of sanctification, sinners who are saved are capable of the worst kinds of sins, the highest forms of sin, short of apostasy. And because of that, therefore, the evidences often vary in degree and in strength and in discernibility. That clouds the issue. But we have said there is nonetheless abiding evidence though this evidence varies. But in the second place, a second con uh, qualification, there is abiding evidence of the Spirit's indwelling, though there is much false teaching and fuzzy thinking regarding this evidence. In spite of the fact that there's a lot of confusion on it, there still is evidence, biblical evidence. Some of the confusion are as follows. First, some people look for some outward sign that the Spirit lives in you. One of the reasons some people look for an outward sign is because they do not want to have to look for moral transformation. They're uncomfortable dealing with the issue of the Bible. And so if they can find some sort of external token or stamp or sign of the Spirit, then they can gloat in the Spirit without having to make any change at all. And that's one of the great errors. It's a damning error of our day. It is leading people into hell with the confidence that they belong to God. When I heard one in that group say to me that when she got the gift of tongues, then she had her assurance of salvation, I was horrified. She said, the great advantage of tongues is that it gives me my assurance. And I asked her to show me one verse in her Bible, one verse in her Bible that connected tongues with assurance of salvation. I could give her evidence of people who could speak in tongues who weren't saved, both in the biblical times and in contemporary society. Several religions foster tongues. Witchcraft and voodoo experience this kind of phenomenon. The cult, the way, will actually sell tongues if you go through their deeper teaching and pay the money. You can get the gift. Some look for a sign. Some look for different signs, but there's this movement of looking for some sort of sign. Show us a sign so we'll know you're of God. That's that spirit of an evil and adulterous generation that looks for a sign. Others look for some astronomical, exaggerated data. They want to see a person that is so absolutely unusual and different and radical from the rest of the culture that you can then say he has the spirit. He has to have a perpetual gleam in his eye, glow on his face, and glistening of his teeth. 
He has to have a, a car that is that is in keeping with the spirit. God don't make no junk. And God don't give no junk, they say. You have books with those kinds of titles on Christian bookshelves. God don't make no junk. What they mean is, if you see a Christian, you're not going to see somebody that's got real discernible problems. I tell you, brethren, if that's the case, I'm pastoring a non-Christian church. And you've got a non-Christian pastor. And I don't guess I'll speak for all of you, but some of you have discernible problems. You know them. And those of us who know you and love you know them. But do we cast you out of the faith? It's, well, you can't have the Spirit and still be rattling around and struggling with this particular sin and this particular nonconformity to Christ. How dare us do such a thing, brethren? We've got a church full of folks with discernible problems. But some people aren't content with that. And if you're like that, you can't have the Spirit. If you've got a Rolls Royce, if you've got the beaming faith, if you can memorize scriptures and parade your skills and knowledge in public, if you can get a great following, surely you have the Spirit. I doubt it. My Lord Jesus, I would think, who was filled with the Holy Spirit of beyond measure, more than any other man ever walking the earth, could not keep a big crowd. He always ran most of them off eventually. He got very few relative converts. I mean, upon his resurrection, he had 500 disciples out of all of Israel, Galilee, and Samaria. Now, don't you dare equate success in outward ministry with the filling of the Spirit. The Bible doesn't. You mustn't. Woe unto you if all men speak well of you. Others... Look for astronomical, exaggerated data, unrealistic. Some people in the church may look at you and judge you as not having the Holy Spirit because you don't have the flow and the glow. Well, I'm not suggesting you should not be pursuing a glow. I'm simply saying that those kinds of evidences don't in themselves prove the presence of the Spirit. Other people don't look for any evidence at all. They're not even concerned about the Holy Spirit. The whole liberal wing of the church, if they could be called a part of the Church of Christ, they're smug with their own perceptions of their superior intellect. They've, they've taken causes to their breast, and if you're not involved in their particular political movement or their particular cause, then you're the one that's missed out. They don't even care about the Holy Spirit. They don't even want to talk about such things because that's not practical. It's not pragmatic. It doesn't afford them power. There's a lot of fuzzy thinking and a lot of false teaching regarding the evidence of the Holy Spirit. However, we must quickly ask the question in the second major section of our sermon, what then is the permanent evidence? Some people are looking for it. We have said it is not extraordinary gifts. Now, I want to exaggerate. I want to, uh, I want to pursue that. The permanent evidence of the Spirit negatively. It is not extraordinary gifts. And I want to show you that briefly. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. And it is my thought at this point that this is going to be the extent that we deal with the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 and related passages. I don't believe we're going to take the time 
again to go through all this working out of the doctrine of the gifts of the Spirit. We're going to have to do that at another time. I know that's important, and I know there's a real problem among us, but I'm going to try to summarize the principles here and move on. The permanent evidence of the Spirit is not an extraordinary gift. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 speaks of something interesting when the Apostle says, Truly the signs of an Apostle were wrought among you in all patience by signs and wonders and mighty works. One of the credentials of his Apostleship were these extraordinary signs. They were wrought among the Corinthians so that the Corinthians experienced these signs. And some of them could continue on participating for a time in these extraordinary signs, as we see evidenced by their practices, which he's correcting in chapters 12 and chapters 13 and chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. But in 2 Corinthians here, vindicating his apostleship, he calls them signs of an apostle. In his mind, and in the mind of the first century apostolate, these signs were intimately wrapped up with the apostolate. They were apostolic signs. Now keep in mind what we're learning on Sunday nights about the foundation of the church. The church was founded upon the apostles and prophets. They don't live anymore because the foundation has long since been laid. We don't need any new foundation that's been laid. And so they ministered over the church universal through the scriptures. Their writings would stay with us. And we saw last week on Sunday evening how that every book in the New Testament can be a trace to one of the threefold aspects of the apostolate. It's an apostolic book. And they incorporated the Old Testament into their teaching. So the whole canon of scripture is the apostolic foundation and authority for the church. No succession of apostles, no pope, no man, but the writings inspired of God, infallible, inerrant scriptures, have final authority over the church. But the apostles saw these signs that attended their laying of the foundation of Christ for the church as being apostolic signs, credentials of apostleship supporting evidence of their authority to lay the foundation of the church in their truth. There are other texts, though, that see this worked out more. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Interesting that this chapter comes between these two very popular chapters, 12 and 14, in which people debate all over the Christian world. Now, don't misunderstand something, brethren. I'm not saying a man is not a Christian if he's made a mistake at this point. I'm not saying that. He may, he may not be. We're not saying that if a man thinks you've got to speak in tongues, that he's not saved. We are saying he's in making a very serious mistake and error. And he's calling into question whether he really understands the sufficiency of Christ and the atonement. Now, he, we're not saying he doesn't fully accept that. We're just saying there's a question about it. But in 1 Corinthians 13... Verse 9, we're told, we know in part. Now, see, the Corinthians had extra knowledge. They had gifts of extraordinary insight and knowledge. The word of knowledge, the word of wisdom, the gifts of insight and discernment, the discernment of tongues, the interpretation. These were extraordinary revelatory gifts. 
and some in the Corinthian church, which was founded by the Apostle Paul, an apostolic generation church, had some of these extraordinary gifts among them. But he says to them, we know in part, because he said earlier, knowledge puffs up. And that's the shape we find the Corinthian church. They're puffed up. They've got knowledge. That doesn't mean they studied their, at seminary. That means that God has revealed truth to them directly that some don't have. And it puffed them up. They know things that you can't know unless the Spirit of God told them. It puffed up. But he tells them, brethren, in spite of all this extra knowledge you have, we know in part. He puts himself in that group. We prophesy in part. You think you've got God on your pocket? You think you sit around in a circle and get direct revelation from God? You still prophesy in part. You don't know everything. You're not prophesying all there is to be heard. But when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away. Knowledge and prophecy will be done away. When? That's the question I'm asking. When? Well, certainly I don't think that the knowledge of God is going to disappear when we see him. It's worth asking, isn't it? Is he referring to the time Jesus comes and we go to heaven when these revelatory gifts are going to cease? Therefore, they're still in the church today? I submit it's very possible he's not referring to that. You say, but Pastor, he says, look down here, we see in a mirror darkly, but then face to face, and we know that we're not going to see God face to face till we get to heaven. Moses saw God face to face before he got to heaven. And you know how the scripture describes that? And you can go back to Deuteronomy and find this, this phrase. He saw his hinder parts. We well, did not see him face to face, but the scriptures use the term face to face. And God says, there's not been a prophet in all of Israel like Moses with whom I speak face to face, mouth to mouth. What did he mean by that? The face to face was a, was a symbolic phrase describing extra knowledge. A further understanding of the full picture, but not a physical encounter in glory. If you're studying, you have to, you're going to have to do your own homework here. You go back to Deuteronomy and examine the face-to-face experience Moses had. And this text makes us think back of that, uses the same terminology. It is possible, I say, that the apostle is not saying, when Jesus comes again, all these revelatory gifts will then be removed. It is possible he's speaking of another perfect thing. Something else that's full in this revelation. Something short of the glory that we shall share, but something that fully reveals the mind of God regarding the salvation and need of his people. It is because of this that some have assumed that he's referring to the finalization of the scripture when the scriptures are completed. And at that stage, at the end of the apostolic age, these revelatory gifts will be no longer needed because of the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, whether this text in 1 Corinthians 13 means that or not, at least it says there's coming a time when knowledge is going to vanish away and prophecy is going to disappear. Certainly, you can't describe knowledge vanishing away when you see Christ. You can't get a better revelatory direct knowledge than that. So I submit he's speaking of a withdrawal of this kind of learning and knowledge that they had experienced in Corinth which had puffed them up. And a time is coming where there's going to be a better body of knowledge than your partial revelatory experiences. I think that's what he's talking about. 
Whether or not that's what he's talking about, we go back to Acts chapter 18 for an ex- another couple of texts that tie these gifts to the apostolic ministry. Chapter 8 of Acts, verse 18. Now remember, in the doctrine is that everyone who believes on the name of Jesus receives the Holy Spirit. And yet, in the book of Acts, the picture is that no one received the Spirit unless an apostle put his hand on him or dealt with him directly. Verse 18, Simon Magus, you remember the experience, he had heard the gospel, he had believed, it says, and he was baptized. And then it says, they then had to call for a couple of fellows from Jerusalem, Peter and John, apostles, to come down to Samaria, which was north, but downhill to Samaria, in order to lay hands on these believers in Samaria that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, why didn't they get the Spirit poured out on them when they believed the gospel that Philip preached? Philip the deacon, not Philip the apostle. Because God tied these gifts to apostolic authority. God would not throw this manifestation of the Spirit out at that time in the history of the church without apostolic control and authority. He was tying all the faith to the Jerusalem faith, where it started. He was not allowing any new experiences to happen out here, willy-nilly, so that every little church would have its own little mind. See, God in the early days prevented this division that we know now. This was pre-apostasy days. Verse 18, when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he wanted to give them money and buy it. Not the Spirit, but the ability to give the Spirit. He saw a real profit in this. If you can put your hands on people and the Spirit comes upon them and they can do these things that give us, I'd like to have that power because he's been a magician. He loves that stuff. See, obviously something's not been dealt with in his heart of hearts. He's come to believe on Jesus, but he hasn't repented of his root sin. And that's why Peter says, you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. You have no part and lot with this matter. You're, you're sticking your nose place where it doesn't belong. You're trying to get an apostolic privilege and it doesn't belong to you. Brethren, what would Peter say to a generation of television evangelists today who have the audacity and the blasphemous spirit to say to people to lay your hand on a television set? To receive God the Spirit. Or who asks for an offering in order to prove your faith so that in direct proportion to your seed faith you'll get some of God's extraordinary benefits. He'll say the same thing to them that he said to Simon Magus. You have no part or lot in this matter. You're in the bond of iniquity and the gall of bitterness. What we're seeing here is that tied to the giving of the Spirit and the extraordinary manifestations of that is apostleship. Signs of apostles. In Samaria, back in Jerusalem, and then finally in Acts chapter 19. And by the way, there are only three texts in the entire Bible that recite people's experience directly of speaking in tongues. The book of Acts has only three texts. There are many occasions in Acts when people are said 
to believe the gospel, to be added to the church, to be baptized and show all sorts of evidence of conversion and not one mention of tongues. And I would say to you that if tongues is necessary for assurance of salvation or if tongues is necessary for the having of the Spirit, why would the Holy Spirit omit such a necessary thing over and over again and leave it up to conjecture? It wasn't necessary. It was a sign of apostolic authority. In chapter 19 of Acts, remember these disciples of John the Baptist. Here it is, a long time after John's been killed and Jesus has risen from the dead and the church has been founded and they apparently don't know anything about it. Pentecost has come and gone. They've never heard of it. They did not know the Holy Spirit had been given. The terminology here, we did not know there was such a thing or whether the Holy Spirit was. And what they mean was, they didn't mean they didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. They mean they didn't know if he was here. They didn't know that it happened. These are Old Testament disciples of John the Baptist who for some reason had not become privy to what had gone on in Jerusalem. And Paul comes to Ephesus and that's what he finds. There's no church at Ephesus here. The gospel of Christ and Jesus has not been prolifically declared in Ephesus. There are some faithful disciples of John preaching repentance, baptizing in the name of John, looking for Messiah. That's what he finds here. And what is it? He said, well, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, didn't know there was such a thing given. Didn't know you could, what that would do. No. And he says, well then, into what were you baptized? Obviously, if you were baptized into the name of Christ and you fully comprehended what that meant, you would have received the Spirit. Well, who baptized? What happened? And they said, well, we had John's baptism. Then it becomes clear to Paul they haven't even been at the, at the level of New Testament experience in terms of revelation. And so what does he do? He tells them, John, yes, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying there was coming one after him. That's Jesus, he says, in verse 4. And then in verse 5, when they heard this, that somebody has come, and that John's ministry was fulfilled in Christ, and what John was predicting had come, then they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Signs of an apostle. Paul laid his hands on them. God linked and limited this gift and the other revelatory signs to an apostolic authority. There's that picture developed in the scripture. The signs of an apostle were wrought among you. Not just signs, but signs of an apostle. Now why are we saying that? So that we can free you from looking for extraordinary gifts as evidence that the Spirit lives in you. They are not evidence that the Spirit lives in you. They may be evidence that the Spirit has wrought. I doubt it in this day. But they are not evidence of his having been given. There's another reason for that. These gifts are not equally distributed among all the saints. But the Holy Spirit is given to all the saints. The Bible tells us that. Why contradict what the Spirit has told us about his giving in order to predict how he's given? Don't make up a new verse of your Bible and define the giving of the Spirit in terms the Spirit has not defined it. He says, 
believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. We've established that. We established that first because we needed it for now. And if that foundation has been laid in your mind, you ought not to have a problem with this. What ought to be the problem is you ought to ask, we've established that every Christian has the Spirit. But not every Christian speaks with tongues. How can that be? If tongues is necessary to have for the Spirit, or if everyone that has the Spirit has tongues, I'll tell you how it can be. Not everyone has tongues who's in Christ. I'm one of those that believe nobody today is given extraordinary revelation. I do not believe in a present gift of, of an unintelligible language. I don't believe it. I did not say that I know absolutely that I've got everything straight. Just tell me what I believe. I would love to debate it with you in a, in a lengthy time without argument, but I'd rather not waste your time and mine, because I've never made much progress in that debate. Not everybody's equally given these gifts. The Holy Spirit divides severally differing gifts. That was in Corinth. But it also, these gifts are sovereignly disposed. They are not to be sought, not in the sense that people seek them, not carnally peddled. And they're not given in a way that there's a pattern to be followed. There's no methodology. You look in Acts, there is no, it's all different. Even the three times tongues came, in each case it was different. Pentecost, it happened without anybody's hands being laid on anybody. And in uh, Acts 10, it happened while Peter was preaching. In Acts 19, it happened after preaching, after baptism. What's the pattern? There's none. That saves us from all this, all right, let's do one, two, three, four, and then we can get the Spirit working. Or it saves us from advertising the coming of the Holy Spirit at a meeting on Friday night. You can't advertise that and predict that. The Spirit of God gives gifts sovereignly. He dispenses them as He will. Seek the best gifts. Well, we're not ever taught in the Scripture to seek the giving of the Holy Spirit. We're taught to repent and believe on Christ and we will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and then to seek gifts for ministry. So you don't equate gifts, and especially the extraordinary gifts, with the presence of the Spirit. No Christian has all these gifts. And some Christians can't find any of these extraordinary gifts. We've got a whole church full of Christians that question whether they have any of these extraordinary gifts. We don't have any tongue speakers here. We don't have any prophets here. We think that we don't need any. We think the scriptures properly expounded is sufficient for our faith. So don't trust in those extraordinary gifts as evidence that you have the Holy Spirit you might as well expect that some witch someplace who can speak in tongues has the Holy Spirit. You might as well believe that Jean Dixon has the Holy Spirit. She's made some accurate prophecies in her day. Brother, I'm not going to bind my conscience to somebody who comes out off the top of his head and tells me that it's true because God told him. If I can't get it in my Bible, I'm sorry. I can't support it. I'm not going to change my lifestyle because of what somebody tells me that's not founded in Scripture. Sorry. Can't do it. 
There's another thing that it's not, and I've got to hurry because I don't want to leave you in these negatives. The giving of the Spirit is not evidenced by somebody's ability to live above known sin or conscious sin. There is a theory, and it's a doctrine that's been in print, that when you get the Spirit, that extra Spirit, you, you, you sin, but you don't know you sin. You can't sin consciously. They say willfully. You can't sin knowingly. That's evidence that the Spirit's in you. Brethren, you sin both ways. Consciously, unconsciously, knowingly, unknowingly. The kinds of sins in you have not changed. The Spirit's coming does not take all the sin out, and He doesn't take certain types of sin out, and He doesn't remove known sin. Christian sin. The guy that tells me he hasn't committed a known sin since the Spirit came just committed one. At least he lied. He's possibly blasphemed. And then he's hurt me because he's not walking charitably toward me because he's not helping me or edifying me. He's not speaking the truth to me. He's probably being proud. I don't know how many ways you could break the Ten Commandments down, but he can't call me, tell me he hasn't committed known sin. I just saw three of them. I know them. How does he not know them? If the Spirit of God dwells in him, does not the Spirit bear witness to the law of God in it? Be, be careful about this kind of stuff. Far from being evidence of the Holy Spirit, such things are lies. In the third place, neither is the Spirit's evidence the eradication of any particular sin. And I want to tell you, this is the subject on which I'm going to stop this morning because it's a place where we can make good application. You do not know for sure that you have the Spirit of Christ because you have gotten rid of or avoided some particular sin. We've already established that you cannot eradicate sin in this life. It will stay to some degree in you. But some people have no problem with certain kinds of sins. And they have good confidence in themselves as righteous and as children of God because of it. But I say to you, brethren, all kinds of sins still remain in you and are present with you and still have their same aim to destroy you even though there are some that you think you're not vulnerable to. It is possible, brethren, to mortify sin falsely. Not in a biblical sense, but to put away certain sins, at least as to their external manifestation, without having dealt with the problem of sin. Some people can break habits. People have stopped drinking, stopped smoking, and cold turkey drugs, brethren, who have no knowledge of Christ. You say, well, how can that be? Because well, God is gracious. That's how that can be. How do birds that have never believed in Jesus get to eat all the time and frolic and fly and sing? Because God gives them grace and supplies them the privilege. You'd like to be a bird sometime, wouldn't you? How is it that so many people who hate God get so many good things? Because God is good and kind even to the unloving and the unholy and the unthankful. Why did God let a guy off alcohol if he's not a Christian? Isn't it more important that he repent of his sins than quit drinking? Yes, it's more important that he repent of his sins than quit drinking. But God still loves the guy in a benevolent sense as his creator. 
And God doles out good things to people. Don't misunderstand this. Not very many people get off alcohol and drugs, cold turkey. Not very many ever get off of them at all. There are exceptions to the rule. But it doesn't mean, therefore, that you, that, that person's a Christian or that it's not an evidence of Christ's grace that other Christians are able enabled to mortify sin. The devil supplies some of that stuff to say, see, no, you can do this without being a Christian. Yes, you can. Some things you can do without being a Christian. You can't get to heaven without being a Christian. You can't live in peace with God and your neighbor without being a Christian. Not ultimately. But you can mortify some sins in an external way. Let me give you some examples. Some people avoid sin for non-gospel reasons. John Flavel has a section where he lists in his volume 5 of his works some of the faulty reasons people abstain from sin. He says, first, an unsound and unrenewed heart may abstain from one sin because that sin is contrary to another sin. Think about it. Though all diseases are contrary to health, some diseases, as the fever and palsy, are contrary to each other. So are prodigality and covetousness. In other words, you, a guy that's covetous does not spend his life giving away stuff. Can't do both things at the same time. Not for long. Hypocrisy and profaneness. A hypocrite, you won't hear him cussing or acting like he's impious. Because he's a hypocrite, he's an expert at being pious when you watch it. Can't do both at the same time. Some people give up certain sins because that sin would make them impossible for them to commit another sin. Good insight. Examine yourself. They, they oppose each other. Not for mutual destruction as sin and grace do, but they oppose each other for superiority, each contending for the throne, sometimes taking it in turn. One time it's this sin, another time it's this sin. These two sins are fighting to see who gets to stay there the longest. He gives an example. It's like the man that was possessed of the demon. Sometimes the spirit cast him into the fire and sometimes it cast him into the water. But nonetheless, the demon was doing the job. Sometimes it's this sin, sometimes it's that sin. But the absence of the other sin does not necessarily mean that you've mortified sin and that you have the spirit. The heart has to be subdued, not just one sin or another. Secondly, an unrenewed soul may be kept from the commission of some sin, not because there's a principle of grace within him, but because of some providential restraint without him or upon him. It often falls out that when men have conceived sin and are ready to execute it, providence claps the fetters of restraint upon them. Some of you have never committed Outward adultery because God has not let you. Abimelech. Every intention of going to bed with Sarah. And what did God do? He said, I kept you from it. Abimelech, remember, he got upset. He said, you could have got me messed up, Abraham. You lied to me. God said, I withheld you, Abimelech. <laughs> Abimelech was the furthest thing from his mind to withhold himself. One thing, Captain, God did. 
Brethren, people do things all the time that are wrong because God has disposed them to it in judgment and people do things all the time that are right because God sees to it and they have no heart for either one in themselves. God will give a Christian over to some sin who didn't want to be given over to that sin and finds himself doing it because God has his purposes in revealing some aspects of a man's heart that he wouldn't have known otherwise. Sometimes wicked men do wonderful things because God wants them to. That's one of the reasons that we, if somebody came and, get, and made an, an offering to God's church here with no strings attached, who was not a believer, we wouldn't give him his money back and say, no, no, we can't take it from unbelievers. It's a good thing for him to do to make an offering to God. That's why we don't tell unsaved people they can't sing the hymns of praise to God. It's their duty to sing praises to God, whether they're saved or not. Part of their sin is that they don't sing praise to God from a right motive. But it's still their duty. That's why we tell our children, you must listen to the preaching. You must be quiet. You cannot be going in and out of the worship service and disrupting the people. If you don't get to the bathroom before church, you sit there. This is worship. This is God's presence. That's why we teach them, sing, sing. And we get on them when they don't sing. Well, you pastor, they expect to have to it's still their duty. And a, and a parent's job is to enforce duty on children. I can't save their hearts, but I can certainly ex exhibit certain kinds of discipline that get them to do right things. And later on, they may well grow up and appreciate that. I appreciate what my dad made me do that I didn't have a heart for. God does that. Well, some men would have sinned, but God restrained them. So it's not because you're saved, not because the Spirit's in you that you didn't commit that sin. Third, some don't commit some sins, not because they truly hate them, but because it's just not in their constitution to want them. Some people in high school, they didn't dance. They didn't believe in dancing. Found out later it's because they just were embarrassed to be out on the dance floor when they were, had two left feet. It had nothing to do with holiness or fundamentals of the faith. It had to do with personal, natural tendencies. Some fellas are just not put together to have a hang-up on sports. And they see some of us that like sports a lot, and they start saying, oh, this guy's not mortifying sin. I'm glad I'm not. Maybe you just didn't have that put in you when you were a kid. Some of us were brought up with a ball and glove and a bat all everywhere. That's all we ever knew. It's just built into us by our parents. We can't hardly help ourselves. We have to pray God will help us not to worship that idol. But that's not necessarily because you're a righteous man that you don't have an interest in that. I have no interest at all in, in driving cars and polishing cars and messing around with cars and spending all my Saturdays out under a car. And some men worship their motorcycles, their cars, so their wife never sees them, their kids never see them, they've made an idol out of them. I have no interest. Well, does that mean I'm saved because I don't, I'm not, I don't have that idol? No, I don't have any interest in that idol. I may have some other idols that I'm interested in. You see the point. You may get rid of one particular sin and it may have nothing to do with being a Christian. You just may not have any natural interest in that. There are some times when you don't lust after women. Not necessarily because there's a deep-rooted righteousness in you, but sometimes it's just your hormones aren't the same. Some of you naturally cry more readily than others. Does that mean those that don't cry are necessarily insensitive and hard? Not necessarily. 
Does it mean that you are sensitive to the things of God because a sermon makes you cry? It may not. You may cry in an old movie just as quickly. It just may be the way you put together. You see what we're saying? Natural tendencies do not prove grace. There's other principles. Some people are restrained from sin because they've been educated and they've been put principles of morality have been instilled in them from their childhood up. Not because Christ lives in them, but because mom and dad trained them. Jehoash in the scripture did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all the days wherein Jehoiada the priest instructed him. You remember when Jehoiada died, Jehoash turned to his own heart. But while he had good influence over him, it restrained him. Parents, this is why God puts you in your kids' lives. If you are not there, they will go astray. A child left to himself will become ashamed to his mother. God put parents over children's lives, and that's why this whole world, under its God the devil, is trying to wreck the home and remove it from a fact being a factor in the culture. They are dead bent set on it. They want your kids in their education system. They want your kids in their doctor's offices. They want to rule over every aspect of your children's lives and facilitate them with legal recourse against their own parents. And they have the language already on the books that in the interest of the state, an overriding interest to the interest of a parent over a child. Why? Why is the devil's program so obvious? Because he knows if he can get a child out from under mom and dad. And I believe, personally, some of the worst parents are better than the state. I do not believe this state is a holy influence on anybody. Though in doing certain laws, they're used of God to restrain all kinds of wickedness. I don't misunderstand my statement. But I would trust a ghetto parent with no money before I'd trust this state, which has got less money and owes more. If poverty is the issue, I heard it. They're going to put a kid in foster care because he's living in an unsuitable house. Where are they going to put him? In a state-owned building that's bankrupt? They're going to put him in a savings and loan someplace? What are they going to do? I'm saying this to say that we've got a mindset that take people out from under those good godly influences without which they would go to hell a lot sooner and do much more damage. The world would not be rotating on its axis today if God's restraint weren't there. He also says that a graceless heart may be kept from some sins by the fear of these consequences. Some of you don't do certain things, not because you love Jesus, but because somebody would find out and you don't want to lose their favor. And brethren, this is distinctly typical of a church. It's one of the peculiar dangers of a good, solid church. You can't get by with certain things here socially. You wouldn't fit in, and you know it. And so because you feel accepted and don't want to lose that, you keep away from some things, at least in public, that you really, really would like to be able to do. Like the old thing that we've shared with you before, the fellow said when we were asking what would you get, ask for Christmas if you could have anything in the universe you wanted, he said, I would like to be able to rob a bank and not get caught. said that in a Sunday school class. There are people like that, maybe sitting here, 
who the only reason you're not doing some particular sin is because of the consequences that you know we would face. Some people have a high view of that. Some people don't commit certain sins because they're afraid of going to hell. But you can be afraid of hell without loving Christ and knowing Christ. You can be afraid of the consequences of God's judgment and still not be a Christian. It's not untypical of a non-saved person to have beliefs in things of the truth and be afraid of the consequences of violating them without loving Christ? What am I saying? I'm saying that there are all kinds of ways that you can live outside particular sins and still not have the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to leave it that and apply it at this point and ask the question. When you examine your own self, In what are you trusting for your everlasting soul's salvation? On what have you fixed your hope? In, where, in what place do you have your confidence? I hope it is not in some fleeting, sovereignly dispensed gift or supernatural exaggerated experience. I hope it's not in some emotional perception. I, don't even, I hope it's not even in your intellectual perception. I trust it's not because there's some things you don't have any desire to do and that gives you confidence you're saved. You say, well, I don't, I, there's certain sins, Pastor, I don't do, and that must mean I'm saved. No, not, not necessarily. Evidence of salvation, which we'll take up the next time, include a love to do right because it's right and a hate for sin because it's sin. Not just because there are consequences. Evidence of the presence of the Spirit include a practice of holiness that sees discernible progress over the period of years. And when that's not there, a serious question must be asked as to whether you have the Spirit of grace at all. Dear brethren, it's one thing for a Christian to fall into serious sin. It's, a, it's one thing for a Christian to live for years in ups and downs struggling against sin. And every time he sees it, he confesses and he repents and he strives against it. It's one thing for him to...